Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by Heart and Soul Broadcasting Services. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today I'm in conversation with Nigel Masimba Munyatin, a social entrepreneur and builder of dreams. Enjoy this inspirational conversation. Nigel Masimba Munyati. I love the names that we have, which we don't usually share. <laughs> Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, Nigel. Thank you, Trevor. Nigel, you are so many things. Let me see if I get this right. You are a marketer. You are a communicator. You are a sports person. You are a filmmaker, documentary maker. Uh, you are a builder of dreams. Which one of these gives you the biggest kick and excitement? Definitely sport. Football is my passion. Uh, it wakes me up every day. Uh, I can't wait for the sun to, to wake me up and uh, to go out there and do you know, the things I love doing. You know, I, I um, joke with a lot of my friends you know, uh, who used to know me in my previous life in the corporate world. And now see me, you know, involved in football, and they're like, Nigel, what went wrong? And I'm like, nothing. <laughs> I just realized that, what I was that doing wrong. Question, actually, <laughs> Nigel, what went wrong? Should Nigel be playing football? That's a, mm. that's a strange question. Yeah, a, a reflection of our society when exactly. it comes to the importance of sports. Talk yes. to me about that, Nigel. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the two things that I love doing uh, tend to be looked down upon by society sports and uh, the arts. You know, there's the, this general feeling that if you play football or you play music or are into film, you know, you are what they call Zimarombe. You know, you never will make anything successful out of your life, uh, which I find very tragic because it's only in our parts of the world where that mindset is. Where, where does that mindset come from? I think it comes from the... Our background, uh, the, our colonial background, you know, um, where you will find that uh, football, for example, was always considered, you know, a lower quality sport. Rugby was looked at differently. Cricket was looked at differently. So you will find that even going to our academic system, most of our schools, you know, it's changed a bit now, but they used to play football and mm. do athletics. Those were the main sports. Mm. You know, in your group A or the former white schools, you know, they'd play rugby, they'd play cricket because they're supposed to be, you know, for the upper, uh, you know, social status. Mm. Uh, so I think as a result of that, uh, football never really got the the respect that it needed to. It has never gotten the It's respect. never got it in Zimbabwe. You know, and I think that has affected its development and its evolution to being, you know, the greatest um, revenue earner globally that uh, football is today. You know, there's no other sport that generates mm. the kind of revenues that sport does or that has so many uh, supporters. You know, you've got, you know, millions, if not billions. How, how do we change that mindset, uh, uh, Nigel? Because it's not just football. Mm. It's sports as a whole. As a whole. You know, if you say to people, I'm a sports person, they look mm. down upon you. You yeah. are 
you're not you're not bright enough. That's why you ended up playing uh, uh, sports. If you say you're an actor, you're not bright enough. You that's why you're not a doctor mm. or an accountant. How do we change that mindset? Will we ever be able to change that mindset? I think so. You know, I think uh, times are changing. Um, people's mindsets are changing. Um, they're also, you know, the, the exposure to the global environment is also getting people to wake up to say, hey, you know, yes, a doctor used to be one of the highest paid, you know, professions or a lawyer, you know, used to be one of the highest paid professions. But nowadays it's uh, David Beckham or Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, who earns more than Jay-Z, his doctor. Jay-Z, yeah, you know. Exactly. You know, so I think the, the younger generation is going to affect a lot of that change. Our older generation, which is really more our parents, yeah. uh, they were brought up under a different, in, you know, uh, cultural environment. You know, I'm, I'm finding, Nigel, I don't know if you're finding the same thing, that a lot of my friends, their kids have gone into acting, uh, music, uh, you know, the, the artsy-fartsy kind of thing, sports, yeah. they are, they are, they are, they are, they are uh, going for trials with Real Madrid, with Manchester United. Mm-hmm. Our parents would not have allowed us to do no. that. Our children yeah. are going there. Talk to me about that yeah. if that's the experience. It is. And, uh, you know, running an academy, you know. Yeah, uh, we'll get to that. Academy, Absolutely. Uh, my experience has been, you know, quite, quite interesting in that I have kids who've come to my academy and say to me, Mr. Munyati, please don't ever let my father know that I come wow. to play soccer. Because each time he finds out, he beats me up. Wow. You know, uh, and some of those boys, they are playing in the Premier League today. And the fathers are now proud of those sons because they're now earning, they're doing well. But before that, you know, they would not allow them to, to do wow. so. You know, so, you know, it is changing because obviously those products are now influencing other parents. I'm sure even this, this young man's father is probably now saying something that is very positive about football to other parents and maybe encouraging them more. Mm. But uh, you still find their pockets here and there. Uh, what I love more is the, you know, we, we run um, what you call a Saturday soccer program, yeah. which brings in, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds. You know, there's a difference there. You know, the young parents are so enthusiastic about their children playing sport. That you know, they they are actually the the ones that are driving the future of sports in in wow, Zimbabwe. That's you know? good. To hear. Uh, so the future is bright. That's the the, the past was you know rather murky, uh, but I, I have every confidence that things are going to change here. Mm. You know, you know, one of the things that attracted me uh, to you um, to have you here is precisely that that our sports is looked down upon, but you are one of those people, a professional person. Um, uh, a graduate from uh, Penn State University. Uh, and you reminded me, as I was reading, that there's people like Dr. Tawia Morewa, mm-hmm. medical doctor, yeah. the flying doctor, mm-hmm. playing football, Roderick Muganiri, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Roderick Muganiri, mm-hmm. playing football. And, and I was saying to myself, what more do we need to do mm-hmm. to have more of Roderick mm-hmm. Muganiri's, uh, Morewa's, uh, mm-hmm. Munyati's, uh, people who are qualified uh, as chartered accountants, medical doctors, uh, you know, veterinary scientists or whatever, mm. playing football and all of us respecting yeah. what they do. Mm. Well, I'm one of those people who's determined to change Thank you. Uh, that mindset. Um, and one of the things we're doing now, you know, at our academy is that uh, we have 74 boys. Shall, and girls. shall we go there? 
And okay. this is this is the Black um, Aces Academy, is that what it's uh, called? Just Aces, Aces Youth Soccer Academy. Talk, talk to us about, mm. first of all, mm. why Aces Youth Academy? Why okay. did you start it mm. and what you're doing? Okay. So it's, it's a very interesting story. Um, when I came back from college in the United States um, in 1981, um, you know, I, I was playing soccer in the States. I played for my college team. Penn State. Penn State. We actually made it. First to, team for that matter. Yeah, we made it to the national championships, lost in the semifinals. But, you know, that was a fantastic experience that, that I had there. And I'd always played soccer here. You know, as a kid, I was first. I was fanatical about soccer. You know, let me tell you this. Yeah, before please. I, I absolutely, into, absolutely. You know, as a kid, I think I was about ten years old or so. You know, I broke another kid's leg. You know, we used to play. You know, your neighborhood teams soccer. You know, I was I was born in Highfield, grew up in Highfield. So our team, you know, um, you know, it was one of the most successful teams. But I had this unfortunate incident where I went into a tackle with this kid and he broke his leg. You know, and for the longest time, you know, I had to sit in the side on the sidelines, you know, because none of the other teams would play our team. They say, if Nigel is in it, <laughs> we're not playing you. <laughs> but, you know, so that's how passionate I was with football. I played in high school. I then played in, in university. Now, when I came back, my elder, my eldest brother, Rodwell, was a, a Black Aces uh, official, you know, was doing their um, marketing and media. And as soon as I landed, you know, in Zimbabwe, he says, you will not play for any other team other than Black Aces. And I'd actually been a Black Aces fan as a kid as well, so it wasn't a problem. Then it was Chibuku. Yeah. I was a Chibuku Shumba fan. Uh, so, yeah, okay. I joined Black Aces and I played for Black Aces. I didn't play for very long. Uh, I had a very serious problems of appendicitis. My appendix burst. Uh, I think it was like two, three months after I'd returned. Hmm. Um and I had peritonitis. So I was in the hospital for almost a month where they had to put in tubes down my gut to drain mm. the green stuff that was in there. Um, so when I came out of, you know, I recovered from, from my uh, illness, I, um, I didn't really have the same drive, the enthusiasm to, to play, play again. Because, you know, it takes you such a long time to recover mm. and the season is coming to an the end. training. And, and, and here I was, I was a, you know, qualified food scientist who had just come to Zimbabwe. And uh, I then decided, you know what, let me just focus on my um, professional career, academic career. So if this hadn't happened, mm -hmm. you wanted to be a professional football player? If it had been possible, I would have become a professional football player. Right. You know? um, but uh, it was... Uh, you know, terminated early, um, but you know, it also gave me the opportunity uh, to look at the other side of football, the administrative side of football. Yeah, because I think that's where the biggest problem is. Uh, one of my memorable negative experiences with football was, you know, we were playing uh, Supersonic in Bulawayo, and uh, so we were told we'd take a bus from Machipisa shopping center, a bus was going to come and pick us up and would uh, then travel to Bulawayo. I had my own car. I actually had my girlfriend take my car back home because, you know, we were now waiting for the bus. Supposed to have gotten onto the bus, I think, around 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock came, nothing. 5 o'clock came, nothing. Around 6 o'clock, that's in one of the officials. Like, no, the bus isn't there anymore, so we have to go and 
take your, you know, typical chicken bus kind of thing. You know, and this is kind of bus that would stop in Norton, stop in Jegutu, and you've got people selling eggs. You're going to a football match. You're going to a football match, you know. We get to Kwekwe now, it's like in 8, 9, 10 o'clock kind of thing, and they're like, well, it's too late now to continue. So we had to put up at some hotel in Kwekwe. You know, the club uh, officials managed to get two rooms. So, so we had four beds for the whole team. So you can imagine like four of you sharing one bed, you know, two on one end. And <laughs> it was, you know, and this is a young man who's just come back from America, where sometimes when we traveled for matches, you know, you'd fly. And even You've got your own bedroom. Yeah, you know. Um, you know, we got to Bulawayo, you know, around maybe one o'clock. And even then, we didn't have a bus to take us from the rank to the stadium. We had to get a combi that took us to the stadium. And, you know, when we got in there, we didn't have time to relax and to recover from this horrible travel, traveling experience. And, you know, we lost, I think, 5-2. Uh, to Supersonic? Yeah. You know, there was this young man, uh, what was his name? Boyman. Um, brilliant, you know, I think he was, he was a hero at our expense. I think he scored a hat-trick. But it was after that trip that I asked myself, do you really need this, mm. you know? Um, you love the game, but this is not how it should be. Mm. You know, so I think after that, I just kind of d decided that you know I, I wanted to try something else. Fortunately, you know, um, Dairy Board had a Division One team, uh, and uh, I was now the assistant regional manager in Harare at the Harare uh, for Dairy Board, yeah, Dairy Board, yeah. Um, and um, it's also the time when uh, Rio Tinto decided they wanted to disinvest uh, from football. And so we agreed, they approached us to partner. Uh, and we agreed on a two-year uh, arrangement where, you know, they would basically ease out over a two-year period. Uh, and that's how Rio Dairy Board uh, became a reality. Mm. It was a combination mm. of Dairy Board and Rio Tinto. And um, me being the assistant regional manager and a football fan, management asked me if I could be the chairman of the club. And I think I was like 20, 24, 25, you know, and I said, yeah, okay. So I, I chaired, you know, co-chaired with uh, one of the executives from Rio, from Rio Tinto. And, um, you know, we had two seasons, not brilliant, you know, it's always a problem when one half is really not into it anymore. It wasn't the old Rio Tinto that used to be. But um, that's how I started. I got involved in, um, in football administration. Right. So, um, you know, I became the chairman of uh, Rio Dairy Board. And then, um, you know, a couple of years later, um, Black Aces, you know, their chairman, uh, his name was Ricardo, uh, he suddenly died. Uh, I think it was meningitis or something okay. like that. Um, so Black Aces approached me and said, you know, you're a former Black Aces player, seem to be doing well in the corporate world. You know, why don't you come and be our chairman? So I said, okay, I will chair. Uh, but I said only for a season because really that's when I was starting to get involved in, you know, many more things. Um, so I chaired uh, Black Aces, and who did I find there? It was mm -hmm. Mark Duvillard. All right. Mark Duvillard was the coach of Black Aces. So together, you know, we formed up a very, very successful 
you know, uh, partnership. Uh, that's the time when um, um, Black Aces won mm. uh, the BP Cup, mm. you know. Uh, they, they, were, they were hot. Yeah, in those days, you know, it was very, very successful. And the team that we had, had young players, you know, your Tinashe Nengomashas and so on. And the average age of the players in that time, at that time was like nine, 18, 19, maybe a few 20-year-olds. So we were actually very successful with a team that was young. Mm. And Mark and I both believed in young players, you know, contrary to what is still happening today in Zimbabwe. You know, you've got coaches that want older players. You know, I don't understand it, but, you know, <laughs> that's so, how they... So is that then how you then get the idea to start with Mark Dovila too, yes. to start ACES? Uh, exactly. Uh, talk to us about the, what yeah. you do at uh, uh, the ACES Academy. Yeah. After the success at Black Aces, you know, we say to ourselves, you know, this is very good. We've shown that young, young players, with a team of young players, you can be successful. Yeah. But there is need to take this process to its logical beginning by starting with young boys and girls mm. and developing them into professional players. And that's how the idea of uh, Aces Youth Soccer Academy was born. Uh, we took our Aces uh, with us, uh, but the left the club behind. Right. And, um, you know, we started uh, the academy in, you know, 2001 was when we registered it with the SRC then. Mm -hmm. you know. and, and talk to me about uh, is the, are you, um, how it's funded and mm -hmm. um, how you identify the talent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been fortunate, uh, mainly through Mark, um, you know, to be able to access uh, foundations in Sweden and Switzerland uh, that have been funding us. You know, our academy, our annual, you know, budget is about a quarter of a million dollars. Wow! And uh, we've been fortunate enough to be able to get that kind of support. Um, for you know, we celebrated our twentieth anniversary wow. last year. This so is been this doing is this, this is an institution. Eh? It is, it is, and. Um, you know, coming back to the whole concept uh, of um, rescuing our sport. Yeah. You know, I see what we have done. We're the pioneers in, you know, uh, football academies in Zimbabwe and the whole concept of development. We've created a new approach to developing mm. uh, young players, which, you know, a lot of others uh, have, um, um, you know, I don't want to say copied, but they have um, picked up on and taking it to their own mm. uh, levels. Uh, but I think we've inspired you know, a lot of, um, you know, people that love the sport mm. from a, in an administrative and also mainly from a developmental, you know, How do you scout for talent and how long does it take for them to come out mm. through your pipeline, as it were? Yeah, this is uh, something that uh, is quite interesting because we hardly scout. We used to do it uh, in, the, in the older days. We used to attend football tournaments, school tournaments, uh, you know, and then we would identify the, the young talent that is there. But nowadays, you know, because of the popularity of our academy, right. we are inundated. I could show you my phone today, you know, at least two or three messages that come in from kids out there or parents that are saying, you know, I want to join the academy. How can I do that? Or my child, you know, is very talented. How can I get them to join the academy? So we actually, we, we send away more uh, young talent. Than so, we, so answer we that question. In. How does my child get to join the academy? 
We have what we call a Saturday soccer program. Okay. Um, where kids come in every Saturday, 9 to 11. Uh, they pay $5 and, you know, they, they get uh, trained by our coaches. Um, this is um, a program that says, you know, it's not every kid that wants to be a Ronaldo or a Messi. But they love the game. Mm. They just want to be able to mm. play it well. Mm. Mm. So, you know, we have this clinic where kids can learn to play such that, you know, whether they're playing at school or for a club somewhere, you know, they're enjoying the game because they're doing the right things. Right. And they have no intent of going beyond. But you will get maybe 20% of them that are actually interested mm. in going mm. beyond. So mm. what we do is we also use those clinics to identify potential. So right now I can tell you there are eight, nine-year-olds in our Saturday uh, soccer Nine program. Nine-year-olds. Yeah. That um, I can tell you already, you know, are going to be part of our academy. Oh, wow. You know. Um, you, you have produced some stars that have, that have played for the national team. Mm -hmm. uh, first league football. Talk to me mm -hmm. about those. What names are those? Yeah. Well, you know, we're proud to have produced talents like uh, Nola Jimsona, Kama Billiard, you know, George Chigoa, um, and, um, you know, uh, the Amidu brothers, uh, you've got, uh, Brett, uh, and his older brother, um, and, and, and a lot more. We've got, uh, right now, you know, the younger generation, we've got Martin Mapisa. We've mm -hmm. sent four of our players, uh, to Spain. Uh, they are playing in the lower divisions in Spain, but progressing up mm. the, you know, uh, the ladder. You know, Spain is a very challenging environment. You're not just going to shoot up to yeah, La Liga just yeah. like that. But even the lower leagues are of a much higher quality than you will find in other mm. countries. You know, so um, yeah, uh, because of that, you know, we have um, been the single largest supplier of talent to Zimbabwe's national team since 2010. Wow. And that is That's at beautiful. all the levels, you know, whether it is your senior team, you're under 23, under 20, under 17s, even the girls' teams. You know, the women's team that went to the Rio Olympics 2016, mm. we had uh, five of our girls who graduated. That, graduated must, that must give you joy. It does. You know, it does. I always say that... Um, you know, when I'm talking to people, and, but especially to the young ones who are in my academy, and I say to them, it's not, a, I don't do this for money. And I always say to people that think that we make a lot of money that they are wrong. If you are doing this for money, you are in the wrong business. You know, uh, to me, and I say this to them, your reward to me, the payback, is your success, not the money that may come out of it. If, if money comes, which sometimes it does, well and good. Mm. But that is not why we do this, you know. Uh, for us, it started off actually as a, as a social development program, you know, in the t early 2000 period. You know, there are a lot of AIDS orphans. You know, that's when AIDS was at its peak, you know. Uh, we even bought a house in uh, Waterfalls, which we use as a clubhouse now. But it was a house to help, you know, for the young boys and girls who were actually AIDS orphans or kids coming from a, homes that have been really wrecked by AIDS mm, where mm. it's now a single parent home. And in most cases, the single parent was the mother who's already struggling, you know, selling, mm. you know, vegetables in the market or along on the side of the road and so on. 
And so some of them, we had to bring them in to say, well, you know, for an athlete to really thrive, they need a certain, a certain environment, environment you know, yeah. nutrition and so on. You're talking about kids who would probably have one decent meal a day and would now bring into the academy where they have three very good meals and two snacks in between. Wow. You know, so you can actually see how they thrive when they come into the academy. on a, a very important point as far as I'm concerned, which is why we do what we do. And you've just said, you, you say to people, if you do this because you think, of the, you think you're going to get money, then that's the wrong motive. Talk to me about the joy that this brings to you and talk to me about the why. Mm. Mm. You know, um, just watching, you know, <laughs> Come on a Saturday morning to Standard Chartered Sports Club where we run our Saturday soccer program. Just seeing a three-year-old running around, kicking the ball, oh. you know, and just enjoying themselves. You know, it's something that really tags at your heartstrings. You know? It's like, you know, this is, this is good because it also reminds you of where you've come from, you know, your childhood and so on. I come from a family of social entrepreneurs. So it's actually inevitable that I ended up being one as well. Um, you know, uh, I remember my father each time, you know, we used to play in the streets outside the house, you know, that's where we play. And my dad, when he's passing through, coming into Bought the house. Butter my paper. Yeah. You know, he'd always say, bring the ball here. Yeah. And he'd always want to show us how yeah. it's done, you know. And uh, you'd miss sometimes and so on. And we'd, my friends would laugh after my dad is gone. But yeah. he was that enthusiastic. And, you know, it just makes you even want to do it more. Mm. You know, I, uh, I say to people, you know, and well, it's not me. It's not my philosophy. I think that's how, you know, most people look at uh, careers and so on. You know, you, you need to find something that you're passionate about something that wakes you up every morning. You can't wait to get up in the morning because you went to go out there and do it. Uh, and that's what I found, you know, uh, in football. And you just need to find a way of making it um, pay you enough to have a comfortable life. You know, not a, a luxurious life, but it, you need to be comfortable enough to be able to do the things that need to be done. And that's what we do. Uh, and that's what I do personally. Um, you know, the money that comes in, well, sometimes, you know, when you uh, transfer players, you know, they, there is an income that comes yeah. in. We plow it right back into the academy. Wow. You know, um, and we now do this as a family. My wife is also involved. Uh, she's actually the legal. Um, and, uh, you know, and administrative director. <clears throat> She actually went and attended this, um, you know, uh, CIES uh, FIFA course yeah. uh, at Nelson Mandela University. You know, that's how we are you mm. know, involved in the game. Mm. She, she was a diplomat, mm. you know, and we, the, we were based in the, she was in the States for 13 years. And, um, you know, at, uh, at our uh, mission to the United Nations, and then she eventually uh, joined the UN itself, but uh, at some stage, we decided to come back home because mm. we had started this thing 
And for a while, my partner was running it while I was away, mm. being a diplomatic spouse. <laughs> <laughs> How is that? How is it like to be a diplomatic spouse? Must be, it's, must uh, be the life. It is the life, uh, but it also challenges you uh, in terms of uh, your morals, your standards, uh, your cultural inhibitions, and so on. Because here you are, you know, your wife is the... <laughs> is the bread <laughs> and I see. Yeah, you know, I would be at home, you know, take the kids to school, you know, mill around with the other mothers who have brought their kids to school. <laughs> and then you go home, you prepare lunch, you prepare dinner. I like the mill around know. with the yeah. other mothers. <laughs> You know, and um, but I think that's it. It also requires that you have a very strong partnership, mm. and, and that's what my 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 wife and I have. We have a very you know strong partnership. We're friends, and we do things for each other. So mm. I did that for her, and now she we came back. She actually gave up a diplomatic career. Wow! To, so you've swapped places. Exactly. Swapped. Um, mm. Nigel, you have. Um, been involved with Zifa. Mm -hmm. uh, when you went to Zifa, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Mm -hmm. When you went to Zifa, you said it's time to for change of the mindset. Yes. Uh, do you did you achieve what you went into Zifa to do? Did you manage to reset that mindset as far as the administration of football in this country is concerned? No. No. Why? Why? Because it is a huge iceberg. You know, when you're going into it, you think it's just a little cone on top that you need to just, you know, take care of, only to realize that underneath the surface, there is a huge, huge iceberg. Describe the iceberg to us. The iceberg is about uh, incompetence in its administrators, uh, but more seriously, the lack of governance. You know, it has become an accepted practice that things are done um, in a less than... Uh, Competent, co professional way. Yeah, you know, and it's accepted like that. And it's, it's been like that for maybe the last 30 years, maybe even going back to before um, independence. You know, um, if you look at the presidents of the Football Association, you know, elections for the Football Association, uh, it is expected that, you know, you have to pay uh, the voters if you want to get elected, you know. And um, I thought I could change that, you know. Uh, after my time with, uh, on the Zifa board, I became so frustrated that I decided to challenge uh, the then uh, president, uh, Mr. Dube, and, um, you know, I um, mounted my campaign, uh, but I even said it in the media, in my interviews in the media, that we needed to change that mindset, that you should pay for your votes. Because I was arguing that the promise of what I can do for our football, and you've already seen what I was doing. You know, we did a few very good things. Uh, I was the board member marketing for mm, Zifa. Mm. And we did a few things which, unfortunately, were countered by resistance. You know, actually, people resisting you doing a good thing because it challenges, you know, the president. Uh, but anyway, uh, we went for the elections, you know, uh, and I can tell you the others put in thousands of dollars into buying votes. I told 
the councillors, you know, what we call the assembly, that um, I was not going to pay for their votes. Uh, I went around the country and spoke with them and sold them my vision, what I was promising to do for football um, and all that. Uh, but I was not going to pay them for their votes because we wanted to change the way we did things in Zimbabwe and football. And they all said, yeah, you know, it's a good idea, you know. You know. Uh, one, one, one elderly gentleman who's late now, um, rest his soul, um, he actually called me the, in the evening after I'd been with him in the afternoon. He says, you know, Omanyati, everything that you've said was very nice. Everything you're promising to do has been very nice. But this other person has been looking after my family for the past four years. And if you're telling me that when you become president, you're not going to be doing that, by voting for you, I would actually be bringing starvation into my family. And I, I'm afraid I can't do that. I had to say to him, well, if that's how you look at life, Akuru, there's nothing I can do. You know, I, I will understand. But that's how sad that reality is. That's, that's how know, big that iceberg is. Yeah, you know. Um, so you gave up on, on, on moving this iceberg, surfacing this iceberg? I decided that maybe I could do better uh, from the academy side of things, from the development side of things. The administration, I couldn't do anything about now because I was out of the system anyway. Yeah. You know. So I got, went back to my academy and we continued to develop. And I yeah. think I've already made a very significant sure, contribution sure. Uh, to the development of our football. But you're now with the Sports and Recreation Com Commission, am I Correct. Am yeah. I right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this iceberg mm -hmm. surely must be floating towards that area, mm -hmm. or you might, might be encountering some of uh, the tendencies from that iceberg. We've already done a lot to chip away uh, at that iceberg. You know, um, what have you done? What we have done is basically uh, started the process of reforming um, Zifa. They have been resistant um, because they've always had this philosophy that, you know, if you try and tell us what to do, we'll always run to Mother FIFA and I FIFA see. will support us, you know. Um, and for, for the longest time, they, they, the other, uh, you know, boards of the SRC have caved into that. They've been uh, threatened by Zifa, and they've cowed as a result of that. Uh, we've refused to do that, and we've persevered, and we've got to the extent where we even suspended Zifa uh, uh, board. Eh? Yeah, the Zifa board, which resulted in FIFA suspending Zifa uh, or Zimbabwe. Where are we with that uh, sorry state of affairs? Um, we have reinstated the board because. Um, the, what then happened is that Zifa itself, the assembly, the councillors, uh, took the necessary corrective action okay. on their own. Mm. Um, and they removed the three board members who were, you know, the major culprits in terms of uh, lack of governance, uh, in terms of the abuse of women, um, and generally, you know, maladministration. Uh, so there's a new board now. Well, it's the same board, but with other members like the current acting chairman, pres acting president rather, uh, Gift Banda. He had been suspended by his own colleagues, you know. Uh, so he's now back and is now, you know, leading uh, the crusade to mm. to turn the association around. And I think you know they will 
they will do that. Mm. Uh, the, the, Are we now in good, is, is now ZIFA and SRC in good books with FIFA? Um, well, we, we, we have always been, you know, even as late as, you know, a couple of uh, weeks ago, we still talk to FIFA, you know, where we are engaged with FIFA. What has since happened now is that, um, you know, after the, you know, extraordinary general meeting okay. mm. that uh, ZIFA had and they create, created a new board, they have now since reported back to FIFA to say this is what has happened and so on. And they are now waiting for feedback I see. Uh, from FIFA. And I think FIFA are still considering, you know, mm. the various permutations as to okay. which one will work for them. So we, we are waiting mm. to hear from them. We also wrote to FIFA and told them that we've now unsuspended uh, ZIFA. Mm. So it's really now the ball is in their court and we're hoping that um, any time now we'll hear from FIFA. I have a feeling that they are going to reinstate okay. uh, Zimbabwe back into football. Okay. Are, you, are you hopeful about... Uh, um, you know, dealing with this uh, iceberg as far as uh, our football uh, and sports administration is concerned, mm. because you're now in the Sports and Recre Recre Recreation Commission. Yes. I'm very encouraged by the fact that uh, FIFA themselves have also now come to accept that okay. there is need for reform in Zimbabwe's football. So they are actually willing to work with us. Okay. Um, the new board uh, also, you know, seems to be much more professional in its approach and more dedicated to, to change. You know, uh, one of the weaknesses that we have had in Zimbabwe is that there hasn't been a, a coordinated junior development program. Mm. You know, when I grew up, you know, there used to be leagues all around, you know, the urban areas um, and even at national level. You know, now there has been none. It's dead. You know, mm. all of your professional teams had a juniors mm. team. None of them had that. They're only starting now. And in fact, as I, as I speak today, as if I have called in all the academies because they want to now start a junior football league, oh, wow. a That's national good. league, That's good. Know, which is very good. Yeah. And I'm really excited about that. But I can tell you that it is because of what we've been doing from the SRC side. If we kept quiet, mm. we would still not have a junior football Tell league. me, the, the problems that we experience uh, as a country in sports and football, mm -hmm. are they mirrored? In Europe, for instance, do we have the kind of uh, the iceberg that you're talking about? No, um, there are still problems. You know, the fundamental problem is there's a lot of money in football. Mm. You know, uh, and it's very tempting. Mm. You're talking about, you know, billions that uh, you know the international football uh, economy uh, generates. So whenever you've got that kind of money flowing, it's it's bound to you know, have people feel that they can take a little and, get and attract away with it. the wrong kind of people. It will attract the wrong kind of people, yes. And um, that's what you have in Zimbabwe. You have the wrong people involved in football. It goes back to what we we're saying about you know our culture of thinking that football is for the failures. Mm. You know, um, and yet there's a lot of money there. So you now have people, the, the higher, I, I am trying to not insult the current people involved in football. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> but the more professional people are in you know, mm. other professions mm. and not in football. Mm. Uh, the, for and, me, uh, Nigel, the, the sad thing is that, I mean, uh, over the weekend I was watching uh, Springboks 
play Wales mm -hmm. um, and to see the passions that yes. uh, sports excite. Mm -hmm. So see the, 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 the national brand mm -hmm. being uplifted because mm -hmm. sports being done in the right kind of yeah. way. Are we aware that through this maladministration, mm -hmm. this iceberg and corruption, mm -hmm. we are hurting the potential of sports in it becoming a national unifier uh, in as competent as a professional way as possible. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with me there? I agree with you completely. And um, now, you know, uh, it's, it's um, national level. You're starting to get the governments appreciating more the importance of sport. As a nation builder. As a nation builder, exactly. Uh, the problem that you have had in the past is that um, it, there's also the... the, the the very negative side of uh, our politics, you know, of politicized sport, mm. because sport is deemed, uh, which I think wrongly, as being a producer of votes. I don't believe so. I think, you know, it's a crowd puller. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, so you you will find that, uh, you know, most of our politicians will not have any interest in sport at all. Except Until for election time. Election time, I can tell you. Starting January next year, the number of tournaments that you're going to see around the country mm. will be amazing. The amount of money that they will put into those tournaments is amazing. And then you ask yourself, but you know, if they could put all this money into the development of football or sport generally, you know, it would create such a positive environment for mm. them politically that they won't need to do what they but they don't get it they don't unfortunately yeah. you know um nigel one of the things that you admire that you do is that you are you co-founded zimbabwe international film festival trust mm -hmm. talk to me about why you did that and what the trust does okay that now takes me back to my uh other life as a communicator and marketer um me and my late brother, Mike, uh, started a communications May company. May so rest in peace. May, Amazing yes, man. Amazing it's true. man. It's a great loss to this nation. Yeah. But um, such is life, you know. Mm. Um, I, you know, um, grew up in a family that has been involved in film and TV. You know, my mother was involved in, uh, in TV. She started the first... Uh, TV program for black children in the then Rhodesia. There's a program called Fukumbwe mm. every Saturday with kids. Who was your mother, by the way? My mother is the late um, uh, Tsitsi uh, Constance Marua Munyati. She was uh, the first um, deputy minister of primary education at Independence, one of the, uh, the first uh, senators. I think there were only three female senators uh, at Independence. She mm. was one of them. And, um, you know, so she was uh, a pioneer in uh, early childhood uh, education. Um, and so, you know, did a lot to help, you know, our, our young children, uh, you know, grow. Mm. Um, so she worked for at, at ZBC. My father was also involved in at ZBC. You know, he was a set designer. Mm. So he used to build the sets, which is something that you don't find at no. ZBC today. There are no TV sets being designed at all, you know, but it's a skill that was available because my dad was 
you know, into carpentry and metalwork and so on. And then my two brothers, uh, Mike and Rodwell, they were newscasters uh, on ZTV. And my brother Mike went on to host his own programs, you know, Guest of the Week mm, and The Nation. The Nation. Yes. You know, so after all that, he decided that, you know, he had had enough of that. And I'd also now left, uh, I was working for Sheraton then as a director of marketing for Africa. I decided, you know, I can do this for myself. Mm -hmm. So him and I got together and uh, we started Munyati Consulting, you know. Um, and most of the work we did uh, combined marketing consultancy, but also on the communication side involved producing a lot of uh, videos, uh, corporate videos for our clients. And that got us into dealing with a lot of production houses. Aha. You know, and through that, you know, uh, I got to become quite familiar with people involved in film until one day um, a guy called uh, Dan Javits, mm -hmm. who had his own uh, production house, said to me, you know, Nigel, you know, given the influence and the uh, connections you have in the film industry, why don't we start, you know, a film festival? I said, great idea. Let's do it. And uh, that's how, you know, the Zimbabwe Film Festival got started. Mm. That was in 1997. Mm. Well, what, you know. what have you been able to achieve? Ooh, we've done a lot. Uh, just, of, just a few things? Uh, just creating an awareness of the importance in, of film as a medium of communication. Mm -hmm. uh, helping aspiring young filmmakers become filmmakers. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a program called the Short Film Project mm -hmm. uh, at Zift. Uh, and the short film project basically uh, is designed to help filmmakers make their first film. Mm -hmm. We'll help them make mm -hmm. their first film, mm -hmm. and thereafter, you know, they go out into the world and start making films. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll, say, I'll, I'll press you there. Mm -hmm. Why is it important for us to make our own films? It goes back to being able to tell our stories. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I can talk about this a little bit more later. But uh, part of the problem is that um, we are not doing enough to tell our stories. Um, and uh, there's not enough support uh, for the filmmaker. Again, going back to both the private sector and government failing to appreciate the importance of a filmmaker and the need to support the filmmaker. You know, let me tell you this story that, sure. that I always say is the problem. I'll start with the private sector. Mm. You know, the private sector company is having problems with its business, sales are down or its image is not as it should be. You know, they'll call in their PR company or ad agency and say, hey, guys, how can you help us? We need to increase, you know, uh, our sales or we need to improve our image. And the you know, agency will say, no problem, we can sort that, we can fix that. And they will, you know, come up with a script or a concept and then they'll go to a production house. Uh, and ask them to produce a video or an advert for them. And who's doing that? There's a filmmaker mm -hmm. who's behind all of that. It's the filmmaker that makes the film that will then make the company, you know, achieve greater sales or look much better to the, you know, public. Uh, and, you know, everything is happy after that. And then they said, oh, wonderful. Thank you, ad agency. You know, things have gone well. What they forget is that there's that filmmaker was involved. And uh, the next time the filmmaker needs money to go and um, 
you know, do his work. He goes to a bank, or and it could be the bank that they actually uh, did this for. And the filmmaker will be wearing sandals and he's got dreadlocks. And as soon as he walks into the manager's office, the manager's like, ah, no, I'm sure he smokes, <laughs> you know, weed, and I, don't, I can't trust him, you know. And he will not give that filmmaker money. He'll say, no, he doesn't understand our language. Mm. You know, I, I like that. You know, he doesn't understand our language, business language. Where's your business plan? You know. Um, so that is the fundamental problem that we have here. In other parts of the world, they've managed to get over Find that. a formula of yes. funding that guy mm. with mm. his techies and his... Exactly. Uh, and manage him if that is yeah. what is needed. Manage how that money is spent. Because also, the truth is that most of our creatives are not very good administratively mm. or in managing mm. money. Because they're so, creative. Exactly. And you let know. me press you again. Why is it important for us to tell our own stories? You know, there's someone who says, if somebody knows more about you than you know about yourself, mm. they have control over you. Mm. Right? Yeah. I will know certain things about you that yeah. you don't. Yeah. That is the scenario here. And if you want to know about the history of Zimbabwe today, you're going to be looking at books or films or work that has been produced by, by others. others, not us. Right? And then you wonder why they have control over us. It's because they know more and about us. And why we have a, a, a low image of ourselves. Yes. Because that pride, pride comes from knowing who you are and being comfortable mm. and confident about who you are, mm. you know, and uh, we, 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 we don't. So someone ends up defining us for us mm. and not us defining ourselves, mm. you know. I, uh, I've, been, I've been doing a lot of work in, in, in the respect of wanting to know more about us, you know, our history, our culture. And believe me, there's a lot that we could be doing today, mm. you know, and that would make us very proud of ourselves. What does it take to have a vibrant film industry in Zimbabwe? What would it take? What, what is it, if I was to say, give us a, give the government a shopping list, what would mm. that be? What would that look like? Well, for government, a start is uh, they need to believe in the artist. That's easy, that? You know, that um, they mean well, mm -hmm. you know. Um, there's, you see, government itself does not understand film yet. Mm. And um, despite, you know, having uh, ministries that are involved and so on, they, they still don't. You know, and as a result, they end up looking at government as film as a vehicle for propaganda. Mm. And therefore, if you look at film as a vehicle for propaganda, you will look at the other side as, as you know, enemies of what you're trying to do. Mm. You know, and I find that very, very sad. There's a lot of young, you know, well-meaning filmmakers out there who have faced the wrath of our government Absolutely. because they dared disagree. You know, disagreement does not necessarily mean that I, I hate you or I want you to die or to end whatever you're doing. It just means that I have a different point of view. Mm. And there is a lot of merit in us being accepting mm. of other points of view. If we, are fail, if we fail to do that, you know, we will never progress as a people. And it, in certain instances, Nigel, it's just mm. ideas. Mm. Um, and not even a, a point of view, but ideas. I've got mm. this film, and this is mm. what the film narrates. Yeah. And, and there's a huge, huge disagreement there. Yeah.
about this this other project, important project that you're involved in with uh, narratives from from Zimbabwe. What's what is it about? What's the thinking about, and why you went into it? It actually emanates from the whole concept of film. What we're talking about about why film is important and why telling our own mm. stories, you know, is important. We started this project. Um, I would say around 2018 uh, as Zift. Right. With each year we have a theme for the festival. Also it's part of Zift. Yes. Right. Um, and uh, we came up with this concept of um, narratives from Africa. One of the, in 2018, all of our films were basically dedicated to films from Africa because we'd always been presenting films from Europe, from America, and so on. And uh, we felt that we're not doing enough to give, you know, African productions enough uh, air, right. you know. So that's how it started. And we, you know, we registered some success, right. you know, in that uh, it gave focus to African filmmaking and the challenges that we face. The next year we then said, well, we've done Africa. Now, why don't we look at narratives from Zimbabwe? And, um, you know, one of the things that we found was disappointing was the, the little that was available of Zimbabwean films. We ended up doing, bringing in films from elsewhere because they weren't enough from Zimbabwe, mm. you know. And um, we then thought maybe this is the time to start doing something about it. You know, why is it that Zimbabweans are not doing, making enough films? And most of the films that are produced in Zimbabwe are dramas, you know, uh, which are the easiest to do. You know, why aren't we doing documentary films? Why aren't we doing other types of films? And on documentary films, we realize that, you know, part of the challenge is that um, we don't have enough content for them to, to work on uh, because... Uh, most of it involves getting into doing research, getting into the archives yeah. and so on. And you might then bring up things that government might not be happy about. So filmmakers just say, you know, just, let me just do my dramas. Wow. You know. But we're losing that. Exactly. So we felt, well, why don't we help by creating uh, access to content for filmmakers? So the idea was we're going to do research and produce a material that a filmmaker can then say, okay, I want to do something and about my history and I can find it. If I go to Zift, we're going to create a digital archive mm. uh, which would be available to filmmakers for, for content. So what we decided to do was uh, to go around the country uh, and try and address all the major uh, ethnic groups, talk to their chiefs, talk to their traditional leaders, and, you know, and this is all on film. Um, and, you know, create this knowledge that is there, but it's just not being managed uh, in a manner that is easy for the filmmaker to access. So we started in the Eastern Highlands. We did Vindau, we did, you know, uh, the Manika, and went up north. You know, we did um, the Kore Kore, uh, the Chikunda, you know. Uh, and fascinating stuff. You mm. know, one of the things that I'm proud of myself is that we actually filmed uh, a Shikiro in a trance. Normally, they don't allow you to do that. You know, they don't like being recorded where they are in the trance. But this guy, well, not guy, this uh, very this special mm. gentleman in uh, um, Kanyemba, 
you know, allowed us to film him while he was in trance, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Wow. But the more important thing is that what we're now doing is we're tracing our history, mm. you know, right from the get-go. Um, the theory that I came up with was that, um, you know, we are all products of migration, mm. you know, different forms of migration. Absolutely. But we're products of migration, starting with the Bantu ourselves. Mm. You know, we migrated... Uh, from the Nile Valley down to the Great Lakes area, and then eventually crossed the Zambezi, coming down south and going all the way down to the coast. Mm -hmm. That was the first migration. Mm -hmm. Then the second migration was Mfetan. Mfetan, yeah. Uh, we from now the south. northward mm. migration uh, of the Nguni, uh, coming through you know, South Africa itself, what is now South Africa and what is now Zimbabwe, mm. Mozambique, Zambia, Malawi, going up to Tanzania, you know. Um, and then you had the migration of uh, the colonialists, you know, uh, mainly the Portuguese. Most people think that it was the British who were the, the first to come to this part of the world. It was actually the Portuguese. Mm. You know, the British only came 400 years later. You know, these are things that only by starting doing this kind of work. That Going to the archives. That, you know, mm. you know. Um, and so you then had... Um, the migration southwards uh, in during the federation period. Wenela. From, no, not yet. From Malawi All right. and uh, Zambia oh, coming yes, into yes. Federation of South Yeah, yes, you know, working in the mines mm. and the states, you know. Um, and then, yes, later on in the 70s, you then had a further migration mm. down south to, you know, Wenela and Fascinating so narratives. And, and you know what's important in that? Mm. In that it then tells us that. It is nonsensical for any of us to want to say, ah, this is mine, I belong here, you don't belong here. <laughs> I knew you were going there somewhat. Because <laughs> where do you belong? We where belong everywhere. We belong everywhere. And the sooner we're able to accept that and move on as a people, the better we, we will be yeah. for it. A message know. that should come from our politicians, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah, all across. You know. And not this xenophobia exactly. that we're seeing mm. uh, all across. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, Nigel, let me take you to who? Who is Nigel? Where, where were you born? Where did you Where did you go to school? Okay. What kind of influence did you have from your from your parents, and uh, where did you grow up? Yeah. Well, Nigel is uh, your typical born Rokishin. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was born in high in Highfield. I grew up in Highfield, and I only left Fio. in Fio. Yes. You know, we love that place. Even today, I still go back there, you know. <laughs> and I only left to go when I went overseas uh, to school. Um, you know, I did my... When did you go to, 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 to what, which primary schools did you go to? You know, it's funny. I went to three primary schools uh, in grade one, you know, because that was the time when you had uh, the... Uh, the political infighting between Zanwe and Zapu. Right. Uh, and it was very, very hot in Highfield at that time. So the school that I first went to is called Kuangira, uh, which was closed after the first term because of the rioting that took place. Kuangira was ideal because it was across the road from where my mother's uh, crash was. You know, but then from Kuangira, I then went to, to Mija, mm -hmm. you know, for another term, but that was too far out. And uh, the third term, I then went to Mbizi, you know. So in, in one year, I went to three schools, you know. 
And then from there, I came down to Chipembere. Chipembere is much closer to home. Right. You know. So I then did the rest of my primary schooling at Chipembere Primary School. And high school? High school, I went to Mazoe Secondary School. All right. And uh, from there, I then went to the United States. Uh, first went to University of Missouri. Uh, I just did a year and a half there. But this is to shit to tell you how crazy I am about football. Missouri did not have a varsity football team. So I asked our sponsors to find me a college that had a varsity and team. And Penn State was and Penn uh, State had one. So I transferred to Penn State where I finished uh, the remaining two years of my... And what did you study at Penn State? I studied food science. Okay. Yeah, because, um, you know, when I went, I, I wanted to be a biochemist. Mm -hmm. So... You know, when you start, you are given, you are assigned uh, an advisor. So my advisor set me down and was like, okay, what do you want to study? Um, you know, biochemistry. And he was like, yeah, but what do you want to do with biochemistry? I said, well, I want to be able to feed my people when I go back home. And then he says, well, maybe there's another way. You know, there's, a, you know, a degree called food science, which would do what you want to do. And I then became a food scientist. Is there any of the food science mm -hmm. in what you're doing now? No. <laughs> <laughs> I ask that deliberately because uh, I find it fascinating with our journeys, um, mm -hmm. Nigel, that w where we start, mm. that does not necessarily mean that's where we're going to end. Yeah. That there's this serendipity in life mm. that takes us to different places. Yes. And that the most important thing mm. is to embrace that mm. serendipity, mm. to enjoy it and not to fight it. Look yeah. at where you are with your uh, mm. science degree. Yeah. I always say university education or any, uh, you know, um, higher education, tertiary education, is to give you the ability to think logically. Right. You know, uh, what you then do with it afterwards is very different, mm. you know, and that's that's what I got, you know, in that food science got me to appreciate, you know, the importance of food in life mm. and so on. But beyond that, you know, it just got me to understand that there are processes, mm. you know, uh, food is processed. You have mm. to take it through certain your, your, your family, um, mm -hmm. your, your brother wrote well, mm. who I know so well. Mm. Mike Munyachi was a national institution. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I, I sat on the nation with uh, at ZBC with uh, with Mike uh, Munyachi mm. from time to time. You would invite would invite me there. Talk to me about the influence that came from your parents mm. and you growing up with Rodwell Munyachi with Mike mm. Munyachi. Um, what did you get most from your parents? Wow. Um, you know, the fact that they were social entrepreneurs, you know, uh, my dad was into music. Um, and, you know, in the 60s and 70s, what used to happen was that, you know, you had talented musicians mm. who wanted to play, but they didn't have the resources to be able to buy their own instruments. So what would happen is they would find a businessman or some such mm. person with means who would buy the instruments and then they would play for him and they would share the earnings. So that's how my dad, you know, got into music. Um, and uh, many of the musicians who were successful in your 70s and early 80s passed through my father's stable. Wow. Oliver Mtukudzi, 
he used to live not far from where we lived. He would tell he would tell people that I played my first electric guitar in Mr. Munyati's house. What was Munyati's first name? Mr. Munyati's first name. Dixon. Dixon Munyati. Mm -hmm. And um, you know he used to play in uh, one of my father's bands. And when he left, that he gave him that guitar as a mm -hmm. gift. Mm -hmm. So all, Oliver would always each time you know we met and there were people saying it was because of his father mm. that I am who I am today. Oh, wow. But it wasn't just him. James Chumombe was also um, part of the group, which is why later on in the 80s, they actually made songs together because of their, you know, experience being part of Mr. Miyati's bands, mm. you know. So I grew up with music around me. Uh, but the funny thing is I could never play. <laughs> Even today, I cannot play an instrument. But that was because... You know, I, I was my father's apprentice. My father used to make his own speakers, speaker boxes and so on. And um, I ended up being that young man who went with the band when they were playing. We played, stood at hall. Carrying around equipment. And... Carrying around equipment, setting it up and collecting the money mm. at the door. Mm. And then at the end of the show, I would actually pay the band, their due, it was always 50-50. Mm. I'd pay them their half mm. and take the, 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 the our half to my mm. dad, mm. you know. Something that has always fascinated me, where mm. does the voice come from? Is it your mom? <laughs> is it your dad? Because Rodwell Munyati, mm -hmm. Mike Munyati, mm. may so rest in peace, mm. and um, uh, Nigel, your mm. voices are, it's just like I'm listening to Mike speaking. It's like I'm listening mm. to Rodul. Where, is that, yeah. where does that come from? It's, is that your uh, dad or from, you? From, from our dad. Wow. You know, and it would be funny sometimes, you know, um, someone would call home, you know, wanting to talk to our parents. I would answer the phone. And one time there was this woman who assumed it was my dad who picked up the phone, but it was me. I was like, hello. And she started, you know, joking, you know, adult jokes. And I was like, ah, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> I don't think this is for mm. me. And she was like, no, it's you. I know it's you. And I was like, dad, please come. This is, your, this is an yeah. issue. Yeah. But yeah, we're like that. And even our children, uh, our kids, you know, have the voice as well. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a family How legacy. How many kids do you have, Mike? Ish. Six. <laughs> Listen to me saying Mark instead of Nigel. I'm used to it. I yeah. I call it an honor uh, to be associated with, with Mike. Mike, yeah. oh, what, what an institution. Mm. I, I must press you here. Mm. Have you ever failed? Or is your failure that uh, Ziffer thing where you get got zero votes? Yeah, uh, that was my biggest failure, mainly in the sense that I was too naive to realize that I am not as effective as I thought I was. Because I thought that, you know, if I sit down with you, Trevor, and I impress you with the things I'm promising to do, that would be good enough. Mm -hmm. But the reality was, no, mm -hmm. that's not what works. Mm -hmm. You've got to give me this. Mm -hmm. And I was- Do you regret not having paid? Yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I actually feel that it exonerated me. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of it. The fact that I refused to pay, I may have lost, mm -hmm. but I've set, you know, someone was saying to me the other day, uh, you and Lincoln Mtasa are the only two people who refused to pay uh, councillors and lost. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, yeah, I'm happy to... to what to lessons answer. did that teach you? It taught me to, to stick to my, you know, uh, my principles. At a cost. At a cost. Regardless of what it may cost you, you must be principled. Because mm -hmm. if you don't, mm -hmm. if you sell your soul to the devil, mm -hmm. you know, you have nothing left mm -hmm. that makes you, you know... 
uh, human, mm -hmm. as it were. You know, so I think that has always been one of the things that my parents taught me. Um, you know, particularly my mother, you know, she was one person who was always, you know, about doing the right thing. And I remember once, you know, as a deputy minister, you know, she would have a car, there was 504 uh, and a driver at home. And it was on a Saturday and I needed to go to the shops in Waterfalls. We used to stay in Waterfalls then. And the shops were like five minutes away. So I persuaded the driver, I said, you know, can you just take me to the shops, you know. Went, it didn't take more than 15 minutes, I was back, but my mother knew that the car had left. You know, she was so mad. She was saying, you don't, that's not how you do things. This is so not to the our driver car. or to you? To me. To you. you know, this is not our car, this is government property and da 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 da. You know, and I, I see nowadays, you know, ministers' children that running around with all these government vehicles and so on. And I'm like, you know, if my mother was around today, she would be saying, no, that's not the right thing to do, mm. you know. And it's, it's, it's being principled, you know. That's one of the things that I think I, I take away from There's a parents. price to pay for being principled, yes. isn't it? Yes. Tell me, um, mm. lastly, before we go to books, when mm. you go to Highfields, mm -hmm. is it the same Highfields that you grew up in? It breaks my heart, breaks your heart to go back. Talk to, to me about that. Uh, and it's so many other people share the same experience, you know. Uh, the house you grew up in, you know, it's become so dilapidated that you, you say to yourself, this can't be the same house I grew up in. And even when you take your kids there, you know, like that's the house and they'll be like, oof, wow. And yet, when you look at pictures of the houses when they were, you know, they were not in the state that they are in now. You know, which is one of the things that is very sad in that our um, urban spaces, our urban environment has, has deteriorated in quality. And I feel sorry for those people who have to grow up in those environments today. You know, and I say to, to, to people, you know, you've got a kid today who has grown up in an environment where across the road from their house there is a rubbish heap where people just dump uh, garbage. Now that child will grow up thinking that that's, that's normal. normal. And then when they become an adult, a decision maker, uh, they replicate the same thing. Yeah. Hopefully there will be some interventions yeah. in the process that will make them realize that no, there are better ways of doing things. Mm. You know? So that's one of the things that uh, I find very unfortunate, uh, very sad. But, you know, uh, it's the sign of the time. Nigel, <laughs> um, I'm not going to let you go before I ask you to share your books. The books mm. that you've read, Nigel, that, is, mm. that have made a, an impact on you. Okay. Um, you know, very interestingly, I, I don't read much, but, you know, over the, the 60 plus years, I must have read something. <laughs> <laughs> but some of the things that I, some of the books that I've enjoyed, you know, it's like, um, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Life in the, Love in the Time of Cholera. Mm. You know, that's a very, very good book about love and yeah. perseverance and so on. Um, you know, you've got uh, The Alchemist by oh, Paul Cello. Beautiful book. You know. And that's, that's one book that makes you stop and think about your life. You know, it's all about introspection, about choosing, mm. I, you know, what, what are the things that are important in life. 
you know, and I think uh, that, go that got me to stop and think. The first one was about love and I'm a romantic, so, you know, that, that was... We need romantics around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the other one that I wrote, read in high school was called Jekanyika. Hmm. And um, that was, you know, one of the experiences that made me, I think, take life, look at life the way I do today. You know, being a kid born in the urban environment, and never we never really went to the rural areas. Maybe mm -hmm. one one holiday a year we would go to the rural areas, you know, maybe for a week or two. But that so my experience with Jekanyika, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. who wrote that book by Francis Mugugu. Okay, and it was about you know life in you know in the prehistoric times, mm -hmm. and you know it was about how society was and raids, how they would raid other chiefdoms and, you know, uh, take the food, wives, cattle, and so on, <laughs> you know. That for someone who is in an urban environment, it's something that you really, it's, it's, it's for real. Yeah. yeah, you know. And I think that's where part of my interest in finding out more about our history, where we came from, narratives came from. Now I love the raw areas, yeah. you know, I, I enjoy being out there, but as a youngster, I did not. Yeah. And I also now appreciate life beyond the urban environment. Mm -hmm. You know, there are people who did not grow up in an urban environment and have actually done a lot better, mm -hmm. you know, in life. So sometimes you tend to think that I just because you are from, you know, the townships, you are better off. In fact, most of the people from the townships are the ones who are worse off mm. now because you always thought because you are in Harare, mm. everything was fine. Was well, the person who yeah. grew up in the rural area is like, no, Switch I must, out. you know, they yeah. strove to yeah. do more and yeah. they've succeeded yeah. much more, you know. Nigel, you and I mm. could go on and on. You know, yes. you bring back uh, <laughs> the good old days mm. um, and uh, you have had an amazing life and you continue to have uh, a, a great life. You give, you giving back so much into our society and absolutely mm. admire uh, what you're doing. I was actually reflecting and saying, this man has been so many things and he's still going on. So mm. continue doing what you're doing, um, uh, you know, giving life to the dreams of those young people. Those young people are our future. Mm. So Nigel, thank you so much for creating the time to join us. Thank you, Trevor. And it's really indeed a pleasure being on your show. Thank you. Uh, you also do some fantastic work oh. in getting people to understand more about what life is. Thank you. you know, and I know sometimes it's been at great risk, mm. uh, but uh, you, you never give up. You, know, you, you are an inspiration also to young people out there that um, there is good mm. in following what you believe. Mm. You Nigel, thank you so much. Allow me to turn now to our viewers who are all over the world who support us uh, on a weekly basis. Remember, we are out every Monday on YouTube, uh, 7 a.m. Central African time. We invite you to subscribe to our channel so that you don't miss out on any of these quality conversations, such as the one I've had with my good friend, uh, Nigel. When you do subscribe, you will receive an alert when we have one of these quality conversations. We also invite you to share your comments, share the, the episodes with as many people uh, as, as possible. Um, we've gone a step further, by the way. We are on all podcast platforms. Scroll down and click onto the link, uh, podcast link for your listening pleasure. Until next time, cheers to you all.